What a tough upbringing for poor Antoinette. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'm discussing the first half of October's book, Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rees, published in 1966. So each month I take a book, I split it into two and discuss it on the second and last Fridays. I'd love to know your thoughts on the book so far. Leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to 50%, that's up to page 77. The beginning of the paragraph reads, after I had waited half an hour, that's about 50%. It's assumed that you've read the first half of the novel, so there may be spoilers up to page 77. I've also read Jane Eyre in preparation for this podcast. If you hate spoilers, then I would recommend to read that book as well before listening. There are also references to the following topics in the book. There's arson, mental illness, and racism. I don't use any swear words in the podcast, and the N-word is used widely throughout the novel, and any quotations from the novel that contain this word have been replaced with the phrase N-word. If there's anything I've missed, do let me know. So, the book opens with the narrator talking about her young mother, who is not approved of by the Jamaican ladies because she is, quote, too young and quote, a Martinique girl. She recounts how she lives with her mother in the Calubria state and doesn't get many visitors. Her father, who has left, quote, was a thing of the past alongside visitors, horses, and feeling safe in bed. She also recounts how her neighbor committed suicide, possibly through poverty, quote, waiting for this compensation the English promised when the Emancipation Act was passed. This is a reference to the 1833 Act of the Parliament, the United Kingdom, which abolished slavery throughout the British Empire and was known as the Emancipation Act of 1833. This decreed the eventual freedom of the slaves in all of the British colonies and caused racial conflicts and social and economic turmoil. Magistrates were brought in to replace the slave owners and former slaves would work under their magistrates and were supposed to be treated better. However, it was as if slavery still existed. Former slaves were still not getting paid for their work and were still treated under harsh conditions. The novel takes place right after the Emancipation Act and there is a lot of tensions. Former slaves were still considered lower than the Europeans. The magistrates brought in to replace the former slave owners were supposed to help fix the terrible conditions, but many felt that these magistrates were worse than their former slave owners. Anyway, continuing the narrative, her mother's horse is poisoned and they become, quote, marooned at the Calubria estate. Quote, one day, very early, I saw her horse lying down under the frangipani tree. I went up to him, but he was not sick. He was dead and his eyes were black with flies. I ran away and did not speak of it, I thought if I told no one, it might not be true. She has a brother, Pierre, who, quote, staggered when he walked. And the house she is living at has a garden that has grown out of control. Her mother pushes her away, saying, quote, let me alone. And Antoinette begins to talk to herself. I'm thinking this poor narrator. It's a very, very tough upbringing for Antoinette. What I've noticed so far in the novel is that every page is very, very rich with detail. No wonder the book is so short, it's only 150 pages. 
Christophine, who's a maid, lives with them as well. She's also from Martinique, and we learn that she was present, she was a present from Antoinette's father to her mother on her wedding day. Quote, and this is Antoinette, these were all the people in my life, my mother and Pierre, Christophine, Godfrey and Sass, who had left us. She describes the racism she felt and describes how a black girl follows her saying, quote, go away, white cockroach. And there's more on that later. The term white cockroach is a derogatory slur with an interesting history in the Caribbean. She learns from her friend Tia that white people are treated worse than black people in some parts of Jamaica and that poor white people like her are not, quote, real white people. They got gold money old-time white people, nothing but white N-word now, and black N-word better than white N-word. It's quite clear that racism is rife in this community, but also that race is also defined by wealth and class. The narrator is not, quote, real white because she is not rich. What a confusing and twisted state of affairs this is. Now, Tear steals the narrator's dress. Antoinette's mother marries a Mr. Mason, she overhears Mr. Mason's friends being scathing about her mother's family and property. And we learn that her mother is called Annette. We overhear, quote, he came to make money as they all do. Some of the big estates are going cheap and one unfortunate's loss is always a clever man's gain. And then importantly, quote, no, the whole thing is a mystery. It is evidently useful to keep a Martinique Abea woman on the premises. They mean here Christophine and Abea means sorcery. So that is why Mr. Mason has come over to marry the narrator's mother. The children stay with Aunt Cora, whose husband was an ex-slave owner in Spanish town while the house is repaired. And when Antoinette returns, she remembers the talk of sorcery and imagines that Christophine has been concocting spells in her room, which makes her afraid. Annette expresses her desire to leave Colubri with Mr. Mason. She feels hated and Mr. Mason says, quote, you were the widow of a slave owner, the daughter of a slave owner, and you had been living here alone with two children for nearly five years when we met, but you were never harmed. So we find out exactly why she was hated so much by the community. She responds with, quote, we were so poor then, we were something to laugh at, but we are not poor now, you are not a poor man. Do you suppose that they don't know about your estate in Trinidad and the Antigua property? They talk about us without stopping. They invent stories about you and lies about me. So clearly, jealousy is rife amongst her neighbours. Now, Antoinette calls Mr. Mason white pappy, but in her head, he is always Mr. Mason. There's a distance between her and him. She wrestles with the fact that Mr. Mason saved them from poverty, but can't like Mr. Mason. Quote, before, my mother knows she can't make him believe it. I wish I could tell him that out here is not at all like English people think it is. Mr. Mason says that Pierre will be, quote, made like other people when he is taken to England and cured. And we hear these sort of homogenized industrial overtones to that phrase. The house is surrounded by angry locals who set fire to it and endanger Pierre. And Myra, a servant looking after the sick Pierre, runs away. Annette criticises Mr. Mason for being blind to the hatred around them. And the parrot whose wings Mr. Mason clipped dies in the fire and is seen as a bad omen. Quote, he made an effort to fly down, but his clipped wings failed him and he fell screeching. He was all on fire. She goes on, I heard someone say something about bad luck and remembered that it was very unlucky to kill a parrot or even to see a parrot die. 
Now it reminds me of an incident on a recent trip I went to Sri Lanka where we visited a reserve and I was told that the English who owned country houses clipped the wings of peacocks to stop them from flying away. But in Sri Lanka, they were free. They exit the house to see staring angry faces chanting, quote, look, the white N-words, the black Englishman. He's charred from the fire. It's another reversal. Pierre is hurt in the fire. The mob surround their horse and carriage. Antoinette sees her old friend Tear in the mob, but Tear throws a rock at her. Quote, we stared at each other, blood on my face, tears on hers. It was as if I saw myself like in a looking glass. The Lutchels came to the family's aid and Antoinette is now at Aunt Cora's house recuperating after being semi-unconscious for six weeks. She learns that Pierre, her brother, is dead and that her mother is, quote, resting in the country. She recalls previously hearing in her semi-conscious state her mother screaming at someone shouting, quote, I'll kill you if you touch me, coward, presumably at Mr. Mason. And then silence, as if she may have run away. Antoinette visits her mother. She is at what I presume is a mental institution and after embracing her daughter, pushes her away. It's an incredibly heartbreaking scene to see the love of the narrator for her mother being rejected like this. Antoinette is enrolled in a convent and she is followed by a girl and a boy who shout abuse about how her mother is mad and tried to kill Mr. Mason and Antoinette herself. She's rescued by a boy called Sandy. The nuns take her in and she is inconsolable with crying. The narrator is finally mentioned by name Antoinette Mason. Now up to that, I had to assume the name from the blurb on the back of the book. She meets a schoolgirl called Louise and is introduced to a teacher, Mother St. Justin. As she is doing embroidery, we learn her full name and date of the story. Quote, Antoinette Mason, nay Cosway, Mount Calvary Convent, Spanish Town, Jamaica, 1839. She describes some of the other girls in the convent. She also explains how she doesn't see Christophine or her mother anymore and tells of how Aunt Cora is going to leave her alone for a year while she goes to England. Antoinette then goes on to describe the black and white characteristics of the monastery. Quote, everything was brightness or dark. The walls, the blazing colors of the flowers in the garden, the nuns' habits were bright, but their veils, the crucifix hanging from their waists, the shadow of the trees were black. That was how it was, light and dark, sun and shadow, heaven and hell. For one of the nuns knew all about hell and who does not, but another one knew about heaven and the attributes of the blessed of which the least is transcendent beauty. She contemplates death, but tries to put these sinful thoughts out of her mind. And her stepfather, Mr. Mason, visits her and offers her extravagant presents. We learn she is now 17 years old. He tells her she will live with him and Aunt Cora and Richard, who's Mr. Mason's son from his first marriage. Now, I don't like this display of power over Antoinette by giving her extravagant gifts. I'm concerned for her safety. He says some of his English friends will be spending the next winter with them. Quote, do you think they'll come? She says doubtfully. He responds with, one of them will, I'm certain of that. And then Antoinette thinks, it may have been the way he smiled, but again, a feeling of dismay, sadness, loss almost choked me. This time I did not let him see it. It was like that morning when I found the dead horse. Say nothing and it may not be true. Now she dreams of being in a white dress and being led by a man to a manor house. Is this a premonition of Thornfield Hall and her forced marriage to Mr. Rochester? We learned that her mother died a year ago. I'm thinking, what? You weren't going to mention this soon, Antoinette? Am I beginning to witness the unraveling of her mind? Quote, 
While I'm drinking it, I remember that after my mother's funeral, very early in the morning, almost as early as this, we went home to drink chocolate and eat cakes. She died last year. No one told me how and I didn't ask. Mr. Mason was there and Christophine, no one else. Christophine cried bitterly, but I could not. I prayed, but the words fell to the ground, meaning nothing. She's losing any religion she may have had. I'm not really sure she had any. She certainly goes through the motions of religion, but it means nothing to her, as this quote expresses. Quote, the words fell to the ground. She continues her interior thoughts, quote, I saw my mother in her mending habit, riding a borrowed horse, trying to wave at the head of the cobblestone road at Calubri, and tears came to my eyes again. And she says to Sister Mary Augustine, such terrible things happen, why, why? And the sister responds with, you must not concern yourself with that mystery. We do not know why the devil must have his little day, not yet. Again, we have that religious concern and religious response. It's very black and white, almost simplistic. Mary Augustine continues, now go quietly back to bed. Think of calm, peaceful things and try to sleep. Soon I will give the signal. Soon it will be tomorrow morning. Again, the sisters can't give her the rich answers she is searching for. Then we move into part two. The narrator is now narrating from the point of view of Mr. Rochester, although he's never named in the novel as Mr. Rochester. Quote, so it was all over, the advance and retreat, the doubts and hesitations, everything finished for better or for worse. There we were, sheltering from heavy rain under a large mango tree, myself, my wife Antoinette, and a little half-caste servant who was called Amelie. Advance and retreat. It makes the acquisition of a wife sound more like a battle. And it's interesting the use of the word half-caste rather than creole. I wonder if this is due to Mr. Rochester's ignorance of, or a negative generalisation on his part. And some time must have gone by for Antoinette to suddenly be married. And this happened very quickly. Arranged marriages presumably did happen quickly. The place they are at is near a place called Massacre in Dominica in the Windward Islands. But Antoinette does not know why. She says, quote, something must have happened a long time ago. Horror seems to be rooted in this place and everything is painted in a negative light. Quote, the sea crept stealthily forwards and backwards. And we have, quote, sad leaning coconut plants and, quote, a mountain birds sing a long sad note. This place there at called Grambois is a small estate that belonged to Antoinette's mother, Annette. And we see an insight into Mr. Rochester's passive character when he states, quote, it had been arranged that we would leave Spanish town immediately after the ceremony and spend some weeks in one of the Windmond Islands at a small estate which had belonged to Antoinette's mother. I agreed as I had agreed to everything else. Now it's worth looking at Jane Eyre here. Here is a quote from the book. Mr. Rochester, quote, Mr. Rochester's father did not like to diminish the property by division, and yet he was anxious that Mr. Edward, that's Mr. Rochester, Antoinette's new husband, should have wealth too to keep up the consequences of the name. And soon after he was of age, some steps were taken that were not quite fair and made a great deal of mischief. Old Mr. Rochester and Mr. Rowland, that's our Edward's brother, combined to bring Mr. Edward into what he considered a painful position for the sake of making his fortune. That's on page 821. And then two thirds through the book, we have this quote, it's Mr. Rochester 
uh, and he's saying to Jane, quote, well, Jane, being so, it was my father's resolution to keep the property together. He could not bear the idea of dividing his estate and leaving me a fair portion. All he resolved should go to my brother Roland, yet as little could he endure that a son of his should be a poor man. I must be provided for by a wealthy marriage. He sought me a partner betimes. Mr. Mason, a West India planter and merchant, was his old acquaintance. He was certain his possessions were real and vast. He made inquiries. Mr. Mason, he found, had a son and daughter, and he learned from him that he could and would give the latter a fortune of £30,000. That sufficed. When I left college, I was sent out to Jamaica to espouse a bride already courted for me. My father said nothing about her money, but he told me Miss Mason was the boast of Spanish town for her beauty, and this was no lie. I found her a fine woman in the style of Blanche Ingram. Uh, this is a beautiful woman known to Jane and Mr. Rochester. Tall, dark and majestic. Her family wished to secure me because I was of good race and so did she. They showed her to me in parties, splendidly dressed. I seldom saw her alone and had very little private conversation with her. She flattered me and lavishly displayed for my pleasure her charms and accomplishments. All the men in her circle seemed to admire her and envy me. I was dazzled, stimulated. My senses were excited and being ignorant, raw and inexperienced, I thought I loved her. There is no folly so besotted that the idiotic rivalries of society, the prurience, the rashness, the blindness of youth will not hurry a man to its commission. Her relatives encouraged me. Competitors piqued me. She allured me. A marriage was achieved almost before I knew where I was. Oh, I have no respect for myself when I think of that act. An agony of inward contempt masters me. I never loved. I never esteemed. I did not even know her. I was not sure of the existence of one virtue in her nature. I had marked neither modesty nor benevolence, nor candour, nor refinement in her mind or manners. And I married her, gross, grovelling, mole-eyed blockhead that I was. So he was forced to marry Bertha, which is Antoinette in this book. Poor Antoinette, forced to marry Mr. Rochester, and Rochester forced to marry Antoinette. But I can't help feeling Mr. Rochester was probably in a better position to refuse the match than Antoinette was. As they're waiting to head back to England, Mr. Rochester critically judges her eyes, which are, quote, too large and can be disconcerting. She never blinks at all, it seems to me. Long, sad, dark, alien eyes. Creole of pure English descent she may be, but they are not English or European either. Already he is judging her by his standards of European beauty. There are more examples of this prejudging by assessing physical attributes. He thinks Amelie has an expression of, quote, delighted malice. He thinks the porter, young bull, has a, quote, foolish, conceited face. Mr. Rochester is painted as very judgmental. The narrator goes on to articulate brilliantly how the marriage has disrupted his life. Listen to this. This is Mr. Rochester's narration. Quote, the two women, Caroline and Antoinette, stood in the doorway of the hut gesticulating, talking not English, but the debased French patois they use in this island. There's that negativity again. The rain began to drip down the back of my neck, adding to my feeling of discomfort and melancholy. He's really using the environment to express his internal world here. I thought about the letter which should have been written to England a week ago. Dear father, but his narrative is cut short. And another speaker says, Caroline asks if you will shelter in her house. This was Antoinette. She spoke hesitatingly as if she expected me to refuse, so it was easy to do so. But you're getting wet, she said. 
I don't mind that. I smiled at Caroline and shook my head. She will be disappointed, said my wife, crossed the street again and went into the dark hut. Now, not only does Antoinette disrupt his life, she also disrupts his narrative. He was about to tell us the letter he was going to write to his father and the coldness of calling Antoinette my wife. And there we see as well the coldness of calling Antoinette my wife. Mr. Rochester witnesses and makes notes of some interesting behavior that conflicts with his European ideals. One, the local porter, Emile, doesn't know his age. Young Bull says, quote, you don't know how old he is, you don't think about it. I tell you, sir, these people are not civilized. Two, some locals walk barefooted on sharp stones. And three, young Bull has a, quote, magnificent body. He's obviously half naked. He finishes the letter to his father, quote, Dear father, the £30,000 have been paid to me without question or condition. No provision made for her. That must be seen to. I have a modest competence now. I will never be a disgrace to you or my dear brother, the son you love. No begging letters, no mean requests, none of the furtive, shabby manoeuvres of a younger son. I've sold my soul, or you have sold it. And after all, is it such a bad bargain? The girl is thought to be beautiful. She is beautiful, and yet... Anyway, he is then taken to her home, Granbois, where he meets Christophine and her servants. One in particular he considers has a, quote, savage appearance. Listen to his description of the place. Quote, standing on the veranda, I breathe the sweetness of the air. Cloves like a smell and cinnamon, roses and orange blossom, and an intoxicating freshness, as if all this had never been breathed before. When Antoinette said, come, I will show you, the house, I went with her unwillingly, for the rest of the place seemed neglected and deserted. She led me into a large unpainted room. There was a small shabby sofa, a mahogany table in the middle, some straight back chairs and an old oak chest with brass feet like lion's claws. A couple of really interesting ideas are nestled in that extract. First, notice how he comments that the air smells as if it had never been breathed before. On the surface, this seems like a beautiful and tender description of a scent, but knowing Mr. Rochester's backstory, I can't help reading this as perhaps the thoughts of a colonizer, as if he is standing on a virgin land with his western nostrils and breathing in a scent that the locals could not have appreciated. Also, I love the fact that he ignores the sofa as a shabby sofa. In the previous section, the sofa was treated with pride as the blue sofa every time Antoinette described it. In Mr. Rochester's eyes, it's just a shabby sofa and the color is not even described. Anyway, he takes a wreath of flowers and shows how he could be crowned like a king. The next moment, the flowers are dropped on the floor and crushed underfoot. I think that flower crown is a great symbol of the colonizer. More on that later. Now, after viewing Grandbois, Rochester drafts a letter to his father assuring him that, quote, all is well and has gone according to plan regarding the marriage transaction. We learn that Antoinette does not want to marry Rochester. Quote, I'm afraid of what might happen. Rochester clearly doesn't love Antoinette and the servants seem to see through his deceit. Listen to his description of the wedding. Quote, I remember little of the actual ceremony, marble memorial tablets on the walls commemorating the virtues of the last generation of planters, all benevolent, all slave owners, all resting in peace. When we came out of the church, I took her hand. It was cold as ice in the hot sun. And I was at a long table in a crowded room, palm leaf fans, a mob of servants, the women's head handkerchiefs, striped red and yellow, the men's dark faces, the strong taste of punch, the cleaner taste of champagne, my bride in white, but I hardly remember what she looked like. Then in another room, women dressed in black, cousin Julia, cousin Ada, Aunt Lena, 
thin or fat they all looked alike, gold earrings and pierced ears, silver bracelets jangling on their wrists. I said to one of them, we're leaving Jamaica tonight, and she answered after a pause, of course. He goes on, Antoinette does not like Spanish town, nor did her mother peering at me. Do their eyes get smaller as they grow older, smaller, beadier, more inquisitive? After that, I thought I saw the same expression on all their faces, curiosity, pity, ridicule. But why should they pity me? I have done so well for myself. He doesn't see past their differences. They all looked alike. And the servants are all wearing black. This is more like a funeral. Now, as they sit and have dinner, moths and beetles fly into the candle and kill themselves. One beautiful big moth flies into the candle and snuffs it out. And Antoinette says there's enough light by starlight. And just like this fake man-made light of a candle, that love that Rochester has for Antoinette, that man-made fake love of 30,000 pounds is surely going to snuff out the life of poor Antoinette. Now, Antoinette tells Rochester that a friend said that London was a cold, dark dream. And Rochester responds angrily, saying that Jamaica is like that for him. This interchange plays out the unsuitability of the match. Then Antoinette recalls being frightened one night by two rats that watch her. Quote, I stared at them and they did not move. I could see myself in the looking glass the other side of the room, in my white chemise with a frill around the neck, staring at those rats and the rats quite still staring at me. She sees an image of herself with this white collar that reminds me of a neck shackle, a symbol of slavery. Possibly she sees herself watched and enslaved, or am I stretching this description too far? She sleeps on a hammock on the veranda, only to be scolded the next morning by Christophine, who says that sleeping in the night of a full moon is, quote, very bad. She asks Rochester, quote, have I slept too long in the moonlight? She finds safety from these watching eyes in the unconventional environment of the veranda and hammock, but is scolded for her actions. The idea of witchcraft and sorcery is brought in the idea of sleeping in the moonlight, and of course there is the association with lunacy. Now Rochester puts his arms around her and sings to her, Hail to the queen of the silent night, shine bright, shine bright, Robin, as you die. This really foreshadows the death of Bertha in Jane Eyre. I see in my mind's eye a vision of Antoinette shining bright as this robin, finally free, dominating the fiery embers of Thornfield Hall below her in her one last flight for freedom. The famous red breast of the robin conjures up an image for me of the red fire below her. It's very evocative. And it's the first time that Rochester truly consoles her and they are united by song. Quote, she listened, then sang with me, shine bright, shine bright, robin, as you die. They are both singing Antoinette's eulogy. It's very moving. The next morning he wakes and curiously thinks, quote, she must have been awake for some time. Her hair was plaited and she wore a fresh white chemise. I turned to take her in my arms. I meant to undo the careful plaits, but as I did so, there was a soft, discreet knock. Why would he want to undo the careful plaits? Not only does he disapprove of her culture, this Jamaican hairstyle, but also he wants to dominate her. He wants to take control of her body. He is offered coffee by Christophine and when Antoinette asks him what he thinks of her, he is dismissive. Quote, she looks lazy, she dawdles about. Antoinette corrects him brilliantly. Quote, she seems slow, but every move she makes is right, so it's quick in the end. He's quick to judge and he does exactly the same thing with Antoinette on the very next page. They're discussing snakes and he thinks, quote, she was undecided, uncertain about facts, any fact. When I asked her if the snakes we sometimes saw were poisonous, she said, not those, 
The fair the lance, of course, but there are none here. His dismissive thoughts about her uncertainty about any fact, quite possibly sexist thinking, is due to the fact that she has a precise knowledge of the different types of snake. Yet, in another symbolic gesture, Rochester touches a bouquet of roses in a jug, and as he does so, the petals drop. It reminds her of a poem about a rose written for the death of a child, and she asks Rochester, quote, Have all beautiful things have sad destinies? She seems to foresee her own demise, although Rochester shrugs it off as nonsense. He goes bathing every day and the fever that he has slowly lifts. He thinks of the bathing pool as, quote, a beautiful place, wild, untouched, above all untouched, with an alien, disturbing, secret loveliness. And it kept it secret. I'd find myself thinking, what I see is nothing. I want what it hides. That is not nothing. He knows he is missing something. He lacks some kind of understanding. Is this a turning point? Is this the point where he could have worked through his blindness but never quite did? The ultimate brenchless point, to quote Pynchon, that didn't turn out favorably. Is this the pivot of the whole book? If only he could have seen what was hidden, perhaps Antoinette might have been saved. What do you think? Anyway, they discuss Grand Bois and Antoinette expresses how she loves the place. Quote, but you don't know the world, I teased her. No, only here in Jamaica, of course, Calubri, Spanish town. I don't know the other islands at all. Is the world more beautiful then? She asks. And he responds with, how to answer that? It's different. I sense he wants to take her away from her homeland. Now, Antoinette mentions the horror of Calibri to Rochester. Rochester is critical of Antoinette, quote, handing out money so carelessly, not counting it, not knowing how much she gave. All the unfamiliar faces that appeared then disappeared, though never without a large meal eaten and a shot of rum I discovered. Sisters, cousins, aunts and uncles, if she asked no questions, how could I? He clearly feels powerless in this world. In the world he is used to, the husband is a patriarch. Not here. I sense a desire for him to uproot her so that he can regain his power. Antoinette expresses that Rochester, quote, made her want to live and that he could take that away at any point. All he has to do is say a word and this word will have the power to kill her. And it draws on very magical thinking, perhaps the influence of Christophine. Here's the quote, quote, and this is Antoinette talking. You don't believe me? Then try, try say die and watch me die. And he responds with, die then, die. And he thinks, I watched her die many times, in my way, not in hers, in sunlight, in shadow, by moonlight, by candlelight, in the long afternoons when the house was empty. Only the sun was there to keep us company. Now they begin a sexual relationship, but Rochester admits, quote, I did not love her. I was thirsty for her, but that is not love. I felt very little tenderness for her. She was a stranger to me, a stranger who did not think or feel as I did. He receives a vitriolic letter from Antoinette's half-brother, Daniel Cosway, because he feels it is his Christian duty to warn him of her, quote, bad blood. Here's the quote. They tell you perhaps that your wife's name is Cosway, the English gentleman Mr. Mason being her stepfather only, but they don't tell you what sort of people were these Cosways, wicked and detestable slave owners. Since generations, wickedness is not the worst. There is madness in that family. Old Cosway die raving like his father before him. You ask what proof I have and why I mix myself up in your affairs. I will answer you. I'm your wife's brother by another lady. Halfway house, as we say. Her father and mine was a shameless man, and of all his illegitimates, I am the most unfortunate and poverty-stricken. Now he recounts how Alexander Cosway's wife died and he married a young Martinique girl. 
Antoinette's mother, who says he was, quote, worthless and spoilt, she can't lift the hand for herself, and soon the madness that is in her and in all these white creoles come out. She shuts herself away, laughing and talking to nobody, as many can bear witness, he goes on. The madness gets worse and she has to be shut away, for she tried to kill her husband. What a revelation for Rochester. Will he trust the message in this letter? I have a feeling it will sow seeds in his mind. Now, as soon as he folds up the letter, he thinks, quote, it was as if I'd been expecting it. He's already made up his mind to believe the contents. It's a nice little echo to the way he trampled on her frangipani wreath. He gets up and, quote, past an orchid with long sprays of golden brown flowers. One of them touched my cheek and I remembered picking some for her one day. They are like you, I told her. Now I stopped, broke a spray off and trampled it into the mud. This brought me to my senses. We move from this unconscious denigration to a very conscious denigration. Although here he blames his actions on the heat of the day. I wonder if later in the novel he will stamp on flowers, but this time it will be his very real and present conscious decision with nothing else to blame for his actions. Things are getting dangerous for poor Antoinette. Now, Christophine states that she wants to leave to go back to the house that Antoinette's mother gave her. Amelie is rude and states that Rochester might want to leave too, and then goes on to sing to Antoinette that she is a white cockroach. Christophine scares her by saying she'll give her a bellyache. Now, I'm assuming Amelie's fear is that she may be poisoned, since poisoning was well known in her bear practices, of which Christophine seems to be familiar with. I'll talk a little bit more about a bear later. Now, Antoinette explains to Rochester what the significance of a white cockroach is. Quote, it was a song about a white cockroach. That's me. That's what they call all of us who were here before their own people in Africa sold them to the slave traders. And I've heard English women call us white N-words. So between Europe, I often wonder who I am and where is my country and where do I belong and why was I ever born at all? Will you go now, please? I must dress like Christophine said. Now remember, when she was taunted by a black girl right at the beginning of the novel on page nine as a white cockroach, there's the black girl who followed her saying, go away, white cockroach. It's a lovely place to end this first half with the image of this white cockroach. My initial thoughts are, well, it's a very powerful ending to the first half, that image of the cockroach framing both the beginning and the end of this first half. It's a, certainly a very powerful opening half with so many interesting ideas about culture, racism, denigration, slavery, emancipation, religion, and many other powerful ideas. I know the trajectory of Antoinette's character because I've read Jane Eyre, as I said previously, so I don't feel like she has any life to breathe. She's destined to this doom, and I really feel that in the text. It's dark, heavy, and oppressive, with little options for our main protagonist to break away from the future set in stone, or in this case, the words set by Charlotte Bronte. It is fascinating hearing the history of this doomed woman. She was given a voice at the beginning of the novel, but this was soon taken away in part two by Rochester as narrator, where she sometimes bubbles up into the narrative, only to be stamped on metaphorically like those frangipani that were stamped underfoot by Rochester and those orchids. I wonder if she will have any kind of voice at all in the second half of the novel, but I doubt it very much. There were loads of interesting ideas to come out of that first half. So, for example, will Antoinette get any kind of voice in the second half of the novel? Will she be forcibly removed from the Caribbean or will she go of her own free will? And how will Christine react to Rochester? Will she put a curse on him? 
I hope so, but maybe far-fetched. I know for a fact that she won't see her mother again. She has been carted off to a lunatic asylum. But what of her half-brother, the one who appears in Jane Eyre, Richard Mason? Will we see him? Uh, will I begin to feel any sympathy whatever for Rochester? At the moment, I can't help thinking he's incredibly close-minded and unwilling to accept his new situation. Will Rochester's encroachment into Antoinette's narration increase? Will he have the final voice in the last part of the book? I predict he will gain the narratorial power by dominating the first-person narration and that Antoinette's narratorial voice will diminish. There are so many interesting ideas in that first half. For example, racism. Mr. Mason thinks of the native population as, quote, too damn lazy to be dangerous. This was evidently not the case when their Kalubi property was burnt and his stepson, Pierre, was killed. And Mr. Rochester dislikes the plaited hairstyle, remember, and wanted to undo Antoinette's plaits the morning after the wedding. We have that interesting idea of reversal. We've got the white M-word and the black Englishman. The idea of the white M-word, now Tia raises it first, quote, she says, old time white people are nothing but N-word now and black N-word better than white N-word. Antoinette reflects on her mother being a white N-word. Quote, she looked across the white tablecloth and the vase of yellow roses at Mr. Mason, so sure of himself, so without a doubt English. And that my mother, so without a doubt, not English, but no white M-word either. Not my mother, never had been, never could be. Yes, she would have died, I thought, if she had not met him. And for the first time, I was grateful and liked him. Here, N-word is not a reflection of colour or race, but it's a reflection of class. Mr. Mason is called a black Englishman, his face possibly black from the far. Again, another reversal. And then when Antoinette sees the boy at the convent for the first time, her ingrained racism comes to the fore. She's horrified that he has a mix of white and black features. Quote, he had a white skin, a dull, ugly white covered with freckles. His mouth was an N-word's mouth and he had small eyes like bits of green glass. He had the eyes of a dead fish. Worst, most horrible of all, his hair was crinkled, uh, N-word's hair, but bright red and his eyebrows and eyelashes were red. Now this reminds me of the sad and tragic self-loathing and shame that arises due to racism in Morrison's book, The Bluest Eye, which was last November's bookshook. Another interesting idea is that surface looks cannot be trusted. Quote, once Aunt Cora had told me, he's very hurt because you never kiss him. He does not look hurt, I argued. Great mistake to go by looks, she said, one way or the other. Exactly. Surface cannot be trusted. Obviously, throughout the book, we've got this idea of slavery. They're still all enslaved, a lot of the people in, in Martinique. After the visit by the new Luttrell, Antoinette's mother scoffs at the idea that slavery is over since the Emancipation Act. She thinks, quote, no more slavery, she had to laugh. These new ones have letter of the law, same thing. They got magistrate, they got fine, they got jailhouse and chain gang, they got tread machine to mash up people's feet. New ones, worse than old ones, more cunning, that's all. And we have that reference to the parrot with clipped wings. The parrot, quote, made an effort to fly down, but his clipped wings failed him and he fell screeching. He was all on fire. She goes on. He heard someone say something about bad luck and remembered that it was very unlucky to kill a parrot or even to see a parrot die. As I mentioned, it reminds me of an incident on my trip to Sri Lanka where we visited a reserve and I was told that the English who owned country houses clipped the wings of peacocks to stop them flying away. In Sri Lanka, they were free. I felt like this was, as I say, more than about peacocks and clipped wings. We have an interesting idea about religion. Now, Myra, the servant, is very religious. Quote, 
Mara came in again, looking mournful as she always did, though she smiled when she talked about hell. Everyone went to hell, she told me. You had to belong to her sect to be saved. And we got some wonderful thoughts from Antoinette on the polarity of religion. In describing the monastery and the religion of the monastery, she says, quote, everything was brightness or dark. The walls, the blazing colors of the flowers in the garden, the nuns' habits were bright, but their veils, the crucifix hanging from their waists, the shadow of the trees were black. That was how it was, light and dark, sun and shadow, heaven and hell. For one of the nuns knew all about hell and who does not, but another one knew about heaven and the attributes of the blessed, of which the least is transcendent beauty. Religion here is reducing life to a basic polarity, simplifying life to pure black and white. There's no gray areas in Antoinette's religious training. As I said, we've got this dense, beautiful language. The book's only 150 pages. It feels like 150,000. An example of this dense, beautiful prose, Antoinette has just arrived at school and describes the classroom. Quote, quickly, while I can, I must remember the hot classroom, the hot classroom, the pitch pine desks, the heat of the bench striking up through my body, along my arms and hands, but outside I could see cool blue shadow on a white wall. My needle sticky and creaks as it goes in and out of the canvas. My needless swearing, I whisper to Louise, who sits next to me. We're cross-stitching silk roses on a pale background. We can colour the roses as we choose, and mine are green, blue and purple. Underneath, I will write my name in fire red. Antoinette Mason, Nay Cosway, Mount Calvary Convent, Spanish Town, Jamaica, 1839. Her name, fire red. Fire. That's her final voice. And this is her voice in her tapestry. It's interesting the point of view. We move from Antoinette's first person narration in part one to Mr. Rochester's part two. It's going to be interesting how that changes maybe over the course of the book. Will Antoinette have the narratorial voice in the second half or will it be Rochester or will it be a combination? How will that change? I'm very interested in finding out. We've got an interesting idea on forming judgment based on looks. Remember, as they are waiting to head back to England, Mr. Rochester critically judges Antoinette's eyes, which are, quote, too large and can be disconcerting. She never blinks at all, it seems to me. Long, sad, dark, alien eyes. Creole of pure English descent she may be, but they are not English or European either. Now already he is judging her by his standards of European beauty. And he thinks Amelie has an expression of delighted malice. He thinks the porter young bull has a foolish conceited face. And when Mr. Mason sees Bertha for the first time, there's a 12-year-old servant described as Quote, a young girl of about 12 or 14 wearing a sleeveless white dress which just reached her knees. The dress was spotless, but her uncovered hair that was oiled and braided into many small plaits gave her a savage appearance. Using words such as savage shows his small-mindedness, his inexperience of a world outside his own small domain, and racism. Description is also used to really reflect the inner world of the characters. Have a listen to Mr. Rochester's description of his environment. It's so negative, you really get a sense of this inner turmoil of his world. Quote, The rain began to drip down the back of my neck, adding to my feeling of discomfort and melancholy. He goes on, The road climbed upward. On one side, the wall of green. On the other, a steep drop to the ravine below. We pulled up and looked at the hills, the mountains and the blue-green sea. There was a soft, warm wind blowing but I understood why the porter had called it a wild place. Not only wild, but menacing. Those hills would close in on you. What an extreme green was all I could say. And we have denigration of culture. Mr. Rochester literally tramples on a flowered wreath of frangipani left on the bed, and he admits it to us, the reader, with no apology. 
listen to this quote. The room beyond was larger and emptier. There were two doors, one leading to the veranda, the other very slightly open into a small room. A big bed, a round table by its side, two chairs, a surprising dressing table with a marble top and a large looking glass. Two wreaths of frangipani lay on the bed. I'm expected to wear one of these, and when I crowned myself with one of the wreaths and made a face in the glass, I hardly think it suits my handsome face, do you? And Antoinette says, you look like a king and emperor. God forbid, I said, and took the wreath off. It fell on the floor, and as I went towards the window, I stepped on it. Are those frangipani a symbol for what the British did to this society? Initially, they're a symbol of power, a crown, a frangipani. Then, in the next moment, are crushed beneath a foot and left to wither. Now, the morning after, as well, they get married. Rochester looks at Antoinette's hair and thinks, quote, she must have been awake for some time. Her hair was plaited and she wore a fresh white chemise. I turned to take her in my arms. I meant to undo the careful plaits, but as I did so, there was a soft, discreet knock. He wants to unplait, unravel her cultural identity, this Jamaican hairstyle, but also he wants to dominate her. He wants to take control of her body. And then when Christophine offers Rochester coffee, he looks at her, quote, long-fingered hands and thinks, thin and beautiful, I suppose. He accepts that the concept of beauty is defined by its culture, but the addition of, I suppose, is so denigrating. He clearly doesn't think they're beautiful at all. What we really experience in him is disgust by what this Jamaican culture values as beauty. He's locked into his English notion of beauty. For example, no plaits in hair, no heavy long earrings, no skirts trailing on the floors. And with that last example, Antoinette tries to explain that, quote, they don't care about getting a dress dirty because it shows it isn't the only dress they have. But Mr. Mason is locked into his small-minded English world of what is correct. And then after he reads Daniel Cosway's letter, we have that nice little echo to the way he tramples on her frangipani wreath. He gets up and, quote, past an orchid with long sprays of golden brown flowers. One of them touched my cheek and I remembered picking some for her one day. They are like you, I told her. Now I stopped, broke a spray off and trampled it into the mud. This brought me to my senses. We have as well this interesting idea of black magic or obeah and the power of a curse, how words can cause an inner death. Here's an extract from Wikipedia. Obey, which is what Christophine practices, also known as obeya, is an ancestrally inherited tradition of Akan witches of Ghana, Ivory Coast and their descendants through the African diaspora in the Caribbean and South America. The ancestral inheritors of the tradition are referred to as Abayifo, Akan witches, and its priests as Bayi Konfo and Bonsam Kofo, which translates to Obeya priest, priestess. Now, Rochester's narration is interesting. Quote, one night she whispered, if I could die now when I'm happy, would you do that? You wouldn't have to kill me. Say die and I will die. You don't believe me. Then try, try, say die and watch me die. Die then, die. I watched her die many times. In my way, not hers. In sunlight, in shadow, by moonlight, by candlelight. In the long afternoons when the house was empty. Only the sun was there to keep us company. We shut him out. There he is invoking Obeah. Now, Christophine introduces Antoinette to the idea of black magic. Further reading becomes really interesting at the mention of shadows. If you recall the quote from the novel, there is a mention that they shut out the sun, they remove shadows. And in Abaya, shadows were thought to have been stolen by some practitioners of Abaya. Wikipedia says here, 
During the conflict between the mild men of Jamaica and Abaya, the mild men positioned themselves as the good opponents to evil Abaya. They claimed that Abaya men stole people's shadows and they set themselves up as the helpers of those who wished to have their shadows restored. So just a few interesting ideas. I'm sure you've got many more. I would love to hear them. Please share your thoughts on the book and send an email or just write some comments below if you're watching on YouTube. I'd now like to share some thoughts on last month's book, which was The Corrections by Jonathan Franson. There are some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads. Kemper said, while reading The Corrections, I really understood the meaning of schadenfreude because I despised almost every character in this book so much that the more miserable their lives got, the more enjoyment I took from it. And when a shotgun was introduced late in the novel, I read the rest of it with my fingers crossed while muttering, please, 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 in the hope that at least one of those pitiful people would end up taking a load of buckshot to the face. He goes on to say, the weird thing is that even though I loathe the Lamberts and almost every supporting character too, I actually enjoyed the book. I usually can't stand stories where all the characters' problems are self-inflicted emotional wounds due to a basic refusal to admit and face reality. However, I have to admit that I found this compelling reading. Maybe I was into it for all the wrong reasons, namely that I hated the Lamberts so much that their continued suffering brought sweet tears of joy to my eyes. That's probably not what Franzen intended, but he had to create some incredibly vivid characters and do justice to their pathetic lives to make me hate them so very, very much. And then Perry said, quote, the thing about books is there are quite a number you don't have to read. Donald Barthelm said that. And he goes on, in his own words, Despite Herr Franzen's picturesque prose and stellar structuring, I could not get past the gloomy, grating, grinding, megalomaniacal, monomaniacal, hypochondriacal, nymphomaniacal, bitching, bemoaning, behooing, bleating and bloated, backbiting and bull of this family full of neurotic whiners stretching from the Midwest to the Northeast for an entire 653 pages. If the corrections of the great American novel have mercy on us all. Thanks for those comments and thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got round to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I've discussed the second half of Wide Sargasso Sea in two weeks at the 28th of October, November's episodes will be all about The Castle by the Czech writer Franz Kafka, written in 1926. It's 280 pages long. So get that one at the ready if you can. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it a rating on your podcast app. Thank you. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the last half of Wide Sargasso Sea in two weeks. See you then. Mm -hmm.